We are in week seven of our series on Jeremiah. There's only two weeks left after this. So since you kids haven't been in here for a lot of those weeks, and maybe some of you adults maybe have missed a week or two, I'm going to begin with a little video that gives a good overview of Jeremiah. All right. So I hope you guys uh, learned some stuff from that. Did you guys like my puppet work? No, that wasn't me at all. I'm not taking any credit for that whatsoever. (laughs) Now, so to recap that and just to get back to where we're at. So like I mentioned, we're in our seventh week of a nine-week series on Jeremiah. And as we've been going, we've been coming back to four themes that have continued to show up in the book. And we're even mentioned in the video, uh, lament, faithfulness, judgment, and hope. In regards to lament, Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. He weeps multiple times in the book, but God also laments. Judah laments over their sin. In regards to faithfulness, Jeremiah's words were not well received. Again, as we saw in the video, uh, so much so that he was mocked ridiculed, jailed, put in stocks, beaten, and kidnapped. But through all of that, he remained faithful to what God had called him to do. And we're going to see a lot of this today, his faithfulness. Also, uh, judgment is God's main message to Judah throughout the book. We're also going to see a lot of this today. And hope uh, comes back to why Jeremiah was written. And frankly, why most of the prophetic books were written, to offer hope. Remember, Judah read this book while they were in exile. They were being reminded that God came through on the promises of judgment. So they have hope that he will come through on the promises of redemption. Go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Jeremiah. Chapter 34 is where we're going to start. We're actually looking at 12 chapters today that cover five different stories. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you an overview of each story. Then we're going to look at some common themes in these stories and talk about what it taught the Hebrews as they were reading and what it teaches us today. So as we go, pay attention to who different people are relying on. That's, what we're, that's where we're going to end up today. So it'll be helpful to keep that in mind. And many of you like to fill in blanks. Uh, so in your bulletin, there's an insert. And part of each title is missing for you to complete as we go. But as we go and as we dive in, let me pray. God, every single one of your words is good. Sometimes it challenges us, sometimes it's difficult, uh, sometimes it's just words that we wrestle with, but it's all good. So God, as we look at your word today, as we look at uh, some challenging stuff today, I pray that you would help us grab what we need to, that we would hear the words that we need to from you. God, you're good, and you give us good words 
And so God, help us just to hear from you today what we need to. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, here we go. Story number one. I call free, not free slaves. Free, not free slaves. And this is out of Jeremiah 34. So what's happening right now, Jeremiah prophesied over the span of five different kings of Judah. So where we are in our timeline is King Zedekiah, who was the last king over Judah before uh, the nation of Judah was taken into exile. So Zedekiah is the king at, the same, at, at this time. And Zedekiah tells all the people, all of Judah, to set their slaves free. Now, I've tossed out the word slaves multiple times, and so I want to clarify that slaves in the Old Testament were different than how we might think about slaves. Slaves in U.S. history had no rights. Slaves in the Old Testament actually had lots of rights. Slaves in U.S. history couldn't own property or earn money. Slaves in the Old Testament could. Slaves in U.S. history had no laws protecting them. Slaves in the Old Testament did. And slaves in U.S. history were only freed by a generous owner or emancipation. Whereas slaves in the Old Testament were freed regularly after six years in most cases um, or on the year of Jubilee, which is every 50th year in other cases. So a different idea of slaves than what we might think. Just wanted to give that to you. But more so than that, catch, catch the, the idea of the story and, and the lesson from it. Because what's been going on is that the people hadn't been obeying the laws regarding freeing slaves. Go ahead and look in Jeremiah 34 at verse 14. This is God speaking. And he says... At the end of seven years, each of you must set free the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You must set him free from your service. But your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. So God, a long time ago, had set up that they, they serve for six years and then they're set free. And that's the way that it was set up for slaves. But what God is pointing out to the nation of Judah here is that not even your fathers had been obeying me. So for many years, much longer than the six, a lot of these Hebrews had been keeping slaves. So they had been disobeying what God had told them to do. So, being having that pointed out to them, they try to make up for it. Maybe they're trying to make up for it to try and win back God's favor. Look at verse 15. It says, You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty, each to his neighbor, and you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. Great job. Hey, you freed the slaves. You finally did what you were supposed to do. So they free their slaves. But there's a problem. And God talks about this as they go down, but look at verse 11. 
because right before that, it says they obeyed and set them free. But verse 11 says, but afterward they turned around and took back the male and female slaves they had set free and brought them into subjection as slaves. So here they obey. Yeah, okay, we're going to free the slaves. We've been falling short on this for a long time. And they finally obey and set free the slaves. And then they realize, "Uh uh-oh, now we don't have them anymore. Bring them back in as slaves. So again, they're disobedient to what God has said. And God then told them that they would be punished. So that's story number one, free, not free slaves. Story number two is about the obedient Rechabites. And for Jeremiah chapters 35 and 36, we actually go back in time about 10 or 15 years. Uh, because at this time, uh, there's a different king on the throne, uh, King Jehoiakim. So we have to go back about 10 or 15 years uh, to before King Zedekiah. But this first story, uh, there's this group of people called the Rechabites. And God tells Jeremiah, hey, bring these people in and offer them wine. So Jeremiah gathers up the Rechabites and offers them wine, but they don't drink it because they had been told to not drink it. A long time ago, uh, Rechab, who started the group of the Rechabites, uh, told them, don't drink wine. And here they're offered wine and they don't drink it. And this whole thing is not necessarily a test towards the Rechabites, but rather it's meant to be a compare-contrast between the Rechabites and the Israelites. So look at Jeremiah 35, verses 12 to 17, and we'll see this contrast here. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction and listen to my words, declares the Lord? The commands that Jonadab, the son of Rechab, gave to his sons to drink no wine has been kept, and they drink none to this day, for they have obeyed their father's command. I have spoken to you persistently, but you have not listened to me. I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, sending them persistently saying, turn now every one of you from his evil way and amend your deeds and do not go after other gods and serve them. And then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to you and your fathers. But you did not incline your ear or listen to me. The sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have kept the commandment that their father gave them. But this people has not obeyed me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, all the disaster that I have pronounced against them because I have spoken to them and they have not listened. I have called to them and they have not answered. The Rechabites were told once what to do. And they obeyed. The Israelites were told time after time after time. And they continued to disobey. 
The Rechabites listened to a fallen man, a, a person that sins, and they obeyed. The Israelites heard from God himself and continually disobeyed. So because of this, God promises disaster for Judah. And God also promises blessing for the Rechabites because of their obedience. So that's story number two, the obedient Rechabites. Story number three, I call Keep Scrolling. Little joke in there. Some of you will get it. Uh, chapters, uh, we're looking at Jeremiah's chap- chapters 36 and 45. Again, we're still back about 10 or 15 years. And God comes and tells Jeremiah to write down everything that God had told Jeremiah to say. And so Jeremiah uh, has Baruch, who's his scribe, write everything down. So Jeremiah is going back through, here's everything that God has told me, write this down, write this down. And the whole time Baruch is there just going crazy and just writing everything down. And after Baruch wrote everything down, he takes it and he reads it in front of tons of people. And one person that heard what Baruch read went and told the king's officials, hey, you've got to hear what Baruch was saying. There's, there's some big things we need to be watching out for. So they bring in Baruch, the the king's officials, they bring in Baruch, hear the words for themselves, then decide that the king needs to hear these words. Again, these words are the book of Jeremiah. So repent or God's going to judge you. God's going to send you into exile. You need to stop doing what you're doing. These are the words that these king's officials are hearing and they're like, we've got to have the king hear these words. But... Before they have the king hear the words, they say to Baruch and Jeremiah, you guys might want to like skip town or hide. This is not going to be the best place for you because we're guessing the king's not going to receive this very well. So Jeremiah and Baruch go off and hide. So the king listens. And as the king is listening, he's taking chunks of the scroll and throwing it into the fire. And burning it. As he's listening, he's hearing these words and he's going, I don't like this. And so he's taking it and burning it. Simply because he didn't like what was written on it. And the king actually does want Baruch and Jeremiah arrested. But thankfully, those two are really good at hide and seek. And so no one could find them. uh, And so they couldn't find them and arrest them. And so at the end of this story, God punishes King Jehoiakim for burning the the scroll. His son, who should have become king after him, God says he's not going to be king. And then Baruch and Jeremiah are told to and start making a new scroll. And then I mentioned, I put chapter 45 in here as well, because chapter 45 is just a few verses and it's talking about Baruch and God is coming and, and praising Baruch uh, and blessing him for being faithful. So that's story number three. Story number four. Jailed Jeremiah zings Zedekiah. 
This is uh, chapters 37 to 39. Jailed Jeremiah zings Zedekiah. We're back to present time. So we're back to the same time as chapters 32 through 34. Uh, just a touch earlier, because Jeremiah is not yet in jail. Uh, if you remember from last Sunday, we were talking about Jeremiah being in jail. Uh, and right now, Jeremiah isn't in jail yet. He'll get there. But first, let me give you a little bit of historical context. And again, I know some of you like maps and think that maps are cool, so here are some maps. So we've got the nation of Judah, which at this point has been reduced down pretty much to the city of Jerusalem. A lot of the other cities where uh, uh, the nation of Judah was have already been captured and taken into exile. And uh, the Chaldeans which is uh, another name for the nation of Babylon. There's a couple different name changes, but Babylon, Chaldeans, same group. Uh, so they come and uh, they have put uh, Judah, so the city of Jerusalem, under siege. Uh, and so the nation of Judah, Jerusalem's dealing with being under siege um, and constant attacks and stuff like that. And then uh, during this time, Egypt, Pharaoh's army, comes and starts coming towards the nation of Judah. And so the, the Chaldeans come down and uh, are, are coming down to meet against Pharaoh's army and have a battle there. And while this is happening, Jerusalem's like, sweet, they're gone. Life is good again. And they start celebrating and they're like, fantastic, they're gone. But... And Jeremiah actually talks about this multiple times in the book, like, don't get excited because they're gone, because guess what? They're coming back, and you will be taken into exile. And so what happens is Pharaoh's army ends up retreating back into Egypt, and so what do the Chaldeans do? All right, back to siege time. And uh, so they go back up, and they're, they're back up around uh, the city of Jerusalem again and the nation of Judah. So this is kind of what's going on and, and where we're at. So back to the story. So what happens here is that Jeremiah warns the king, warns Zedekiah, that Judah won't get rest from the Chaldeans. So Jeremiah's like, hey, they're gone. Like, we finally get some rest. And Jeremiah's like, nope, that's not going to happen. Jeremiah, uh, while they're not under siege, Jeremiah goes to leave the city but as he's leaving the city, he's accused of deserting to the Chaldeans. Oh, you're leaving so that you can go be on that side now, aren't you? He's like, nope, not happening. But they're like, we're not buying it and we're throwing you in jail. So they grab him and they toss him in jail. Uh, shortly after this, Zedekiah has Jeremiah brought to him. And they have this secret chat. Look at uh, chapter 37. Verse 17. And I imagine this kind of happening in whispers. Uh, going back to 16, it says, When Jeremiah had come to the dungeon cells and remained there many days, King Zedekiah sent for him and received him. The king questioned him secretly in his house and said, Jeremiah, is there any word from the Lord? Jeremiah said, There is. And then he said, you shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. That's not good news. 
<laughs> but that's what he tosses out to the king. <laughs> so after the bad news, Jeremiah then asks, look, why, why am I in this jail? I wasn't deserting. Why am I being kept in this spot uh, where it was really unsanitary? So Zedekiah, Zedekiah is an interesting guy because he bounces back and forth. Like sometimes he, he's like one of those guys, like you're almost there. Like just take that last step and you're going to be good and you're going to obey and things are going to be great. But then he keeps like waffling back and forth. But there's like a little bit of a good heart and it seems like there's a decent relationship between the two. Because as Jeremiah brings this up, um, Zedekiah has him moved to the court of the guard which is a cleaner place with fresh food, um, but he's still not free. So he still has to stay there, but, but Zedekiah says, look, if you're going to be in jail, like we're going to make it nice for you. Um, so uh, as Jeremiah is sitting in the court of the guard, he's still prophesying and he's still giving out God's words, which are not good, uh, and people don't like what Jeremiah is saying, so they throw him into a cistern. Cistern being a, a big well, basically a, a place to store water. Uh, but at this time, that cistern was devoid of water, so it was just a bunch of mud. So Jeremiah hits the bottom of this cistern, which is about uh, 30 feet down, and he starts sinking into the mud. Life is tough for Jeremiah. <laughs> but this guy named Ebed-Melech... Uh, Ebed Melech means servant of the king. Uh, he sees that Jeremiah is in the cistern and he goes and tells Zedekiah. So Zedekiah has Ebed Melech get help from others to pull Jeremiah out of the cistern. No, no, no. Jeremiah doesn't need to be in there. So Jeremiah is pulled out of the cistern and put back into the court of the guard. Then Zedekiah wants to hear from Jeremiah again. So he brings Jeremiah back over and asks him, hey, any, any different news, any better news? Like, you got a better word from the Lord for me? And Jeremiah tells him, basically, surrender and you and Jerusalem will be spared. Don't surrender and Jerusalem will burn and you will be taken captive. Now look in chapter 38, verses 19 and 20. Verses 19 and 20. King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I'm afraid of the Judeans who have deserted to the Chaldeans, lest I be handed over to them and they deal cruelly with me. Jeremiah said, you shall not be given to them. Obey now the voice of the Lord in what I say to you, and it shall be well with you and your life shall be spared. See, Zedekiah was worried about surrendering because a lot of the people of Judah actually had deserted to the Chaldeans, and I'm sure they wouldn't be thrilled about seeing their king again. I'm like, dude, you were a bad king. Like, we're going to take you to town. We're going to beat you up. We're going to kill you, whatever. And so he was afraid of them and said, I, I can't do that. I can't surrender. Um, and Jer Jeremiah promises, if you do, you will be protected. Well, Jeremiah, or not Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Zedekiah doesn't surrender. Jerusalem burns and Zedekiah is taken captive. Uh, Jeremiah is released from jail and put under the charge of Gedaliah, 
who's the new governor of Judah. So as uh, the Chaldeans take most of Judah off to Babylon, they leave some behind and they leave this guy Gedaliah in charge. And then Ebed-Melech at the end of this passage is blessed for trusting God and stepping up and doing the right thing when Jeremiah was in the cistern. So that's story number four. Story number five. Story number five, I call Back to Egypt and Idols. Back to Egypt and Idols. So Gedaliah, who's now the governor, uh, gathers the remnant of Judah. So Jerusalem has burned. There's a small group of people that's left, and Gedaliah gathers them up together. Now, before we get into this remnant, I want to remind you what Jeremiah has said earlier about the remnant of Judah. In chapter 24, verses 4 to 10, it says this. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Jeremiah has this dream about some good figs and some bad figs. So God is now interpreting this dream. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. These are the people that the Chaldeans took back to Babylon, that God has promised to watch over and to protect and to bring back. But thus says the Lord, like the bad figs, so, uh, or like the bad figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so will I treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem who will remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. Remember that as well. Dwell in the land of Egypt. I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. And I will send sword, famine, and pestilence upon them until they shall be utterly destroyed from the land that I gave them and their fathers. So he promises for this remnant to completely wipe them out. Completely wipe them out. Okay, so back to our story, Gedaliah has gathered this remnant, which we know from Jeremiah's prophecy, it's not going to be good for them. So they settle down in the land and they're starting to get comfy and planting crops and stuff like that. And this guy, uh, Johanan, shows up and warns Gedaliah that this other guy, Ishmael, is going to kill him. And Gedaliah says, no, 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 that's not going to happen. Ishmael's not going to kill me. Well, guess what? Ishmael kills Gedaliah and a whole bunch of other people. So now this governor of Judah is dead. And Johanan goes after Ishmael. And many people that were following Ishmael leave to follow Johanan instead. And Ishmael and eight of his men escape. So the king's assassin, Ishmael, does his deed, grabs a few people, and takes off. And now, Johanan is kind of in charge and kind of stepped in as the leader of this remnant. And Johanan and the people get ready to go 
to Egypt. Remember how I mentioned like God judging the people that went to Egypt. Here's, here's where it's coming into play. So here was their mindset. Okay. So they're sitting in the area of Judah. Um, and the Chaldeans are still kind of like here and there around, and they don't want to be near the Chaldeans. They were afraid of them. Egypt was far away from the Chaldeans, so they're like, man, if we go to Egypt, we're going to be safe. And they also thought, hey, Egypt has food. There wasn't a ton of food left around in Judah after all of these attacks and all of the, the Chaldeans coming and taking these people to exile. So they're like, hey, we could go to Egypt and get a ton of food. So this was their mindset. So now we dive into chapter 42. You guys are doing great keeping up, by the way. Chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Chapter 42. Then all the commanders of the forces, and Johanan the son of Cariah, and Jezaniah the son of Hoshiah, and all the people from the least to the greatest, came near and said to Jeremiah the prophet, Let our plea for mercy come before you and pray to the Lord your God for us, for all this remnant, because we are left but with a few as your eyes see us, that the Lord your God may show us the way we should go and the thing that we should do. Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I have heard you. Behold, I will pray to the Lord your God according to your request. And whatever the Lord answers you, I will tell you. I will keep nothing back from you. Then they said to Jeremiah, look at this, may the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act according to all the word which the Lord your God sends sends you to us. Whether it is good or bad, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we are sending you, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. So here, this remnant that's left, they're, they're getting ready, they're packing up, they're getting ready to go to Egypt. But before they do, they come to Jeremiah and say, find out what God has to say for us. And whatever you say, that is what we will do. They promise, we are going to obey. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm sure you're not surprised at what's coming. So after 10 days of praying, Jeremiah gets his message back from God. And here's what God says. God tells the remnant not to go to Egypt. He says, if they do, what they were hoping to gain will be denied them. They were hoping to be safe. He says, you will not be safe. He says they were were hoping to escape the famine. God says the famine will come to Egypt. And continue to read what God says to the nation in 42, starting in verse 18. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as my anger and my wrath were poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so my wrath will be poured out on you when you go to Egypt. You shall become an excretion, a horror, a curse, and a taunt. You shall see this place no more. The Lord has said to you, O remnant of Judah, do not go to Egypt. Know for a certainty that I have warned you this day that you have gone astray at the cost of your lives. For you sent me to the Lord your God, saying, Pray for us to the Lord our God, and whatever the Lord our God says, declare to us, and we will do it. 
And I have to this day declared it to you, but you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God in anything that he sent me to tell you. Now therefore, know for certainty that you shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence in the place where you desire to go to live. Okay. That was a pretty clear warning, right? Don't go to Egypt. And remember, they said, whatever God says, whether it's good or bad, we will obey. And so it's that part in the story where you're like, are they finally going to get it right? Are they going to do it? And they pack up and they say, no, no. They, here's what they say. They say, Jeremiah, you're lying. That's not what God said. I kid you not. They say, Jeremiah, you're telling us lies. God didn't say that. There's no way. So they pack up and go to Egypt. <laughs> and they bring Jeremiah and Baruch along with them. Thanks, guys. Like, we don't want to go either. So they get to Egypt, and Jeremiah gives them more of God's words. <laughs> he prophesies that Babylon's going to come and attack them there. And later, that's exactly what happens. He reminds them of God's hatred towards their past idolatry. And he condemns their current idolatry. Flip over to chapter 44, verses 8 to 10. Chapter 44. It says, Why do you provoke me to anger, with the works of your hands, making offerings to other gods in the land of Egypt where you have come to live, so that you may be cut off and become a curse and a taunt among all the nations of the earth. You see that language keep coming back up? Curse and a taunt? Have you forgotten the evil of your fathers, the evil of the kings of Judah, the evil of their wives, your own evil, and the evil of your wives, which they committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? They have not humbled themselves even to this day, nor have they feared, nor walked in my law and my statutes I set before you and before their fathers. Basically saying, hey, you are worshiping other gods. Knock it off. You did it in Jerusalem. You've been punished for that. Now here you are in Egypt and you're picking it up again? Stop. So how do they respond? Do they get it right this time? <sighs> Look at verse 15 of chapter 44. Then all the men who knew that their wives had made offerings to other gods, and all the women who stood by, a great assembly, all the people who lived in Pathros in the land of Egypt, answered Jeremiah, As for the word you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, come on, come on, we will not listen to you, but we will do everything that we have vowed, making offerings to the queen of heaven. Oh, come on, guys. And pour out drink offerings to her, as we did, both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. But since we left off making offerings to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. Oh, they blow it again. We're going to worship the queen of heaven because she gave us good things. 
This is not how it works with God. At all. Verse 23, it says, It is because you made offerings, and because you sinned against the Lord, and did not obey the voice of the Lord, or walk in his law, and in his statutes, and in his testimonies, that this disaster has happened to you as at this day. See, the bad started happening because they were worshiping those other gods. God was trying to teach them, to discipline them. Stop worshiping these other gods. You're worshiping them, I'm going to discipline you. No, no, no. See, things were good when we were worshiping the Queen of Heaven. So we're going to get back to that. All right. So there's our five stories. But how were the Hebrews in exile reading this? What do we have to glean from this? Let's start by looking at some common themes. First, there's a common theme of disobedience. In story number one, they already weren't obeying God's law about freeing slaves. Then, uh, when they do free the slaves, they go back on, uh, back on that and make them slaves again. In story number two, the Rechabites were obedient when the Israelites were disobedient. In story number three, Jehoiakim ignores God's words, burns the scrolls. In story number four, people mistreat Jeremiah because they don't like what he has to say. Zedekiah and Judah disobey God. And story five, the remnant goes to Egypt when they're told not to, and they worship other gods when they're told not to. So one common theme through all of this is disobedience. Another common theme through all of this is faithfulness. In all five stories, Jeremiah continues to deliver God's message without thought to how well it will be received. In story two, we see that the Rechabites were faithfully obeying the instructions given to them. In story three, Jeremiah and Baruch faithfully wrote down everything, twice. In story number four, Jeremiah continues to speak God's words despite continual bad reception, jailed, thrown in a cistern. And in story five, again, Jeremiah faithfully speaks God's words despite what what might be looked at as bad timing. Yeah, Jeremiah continues to give them the news they don't want to hear. And when they get to Egypt, he wastes no time to tell them that God's going to bring them judgment. So how does Judah receive this? Judah's, again, sitting in exile as they're reading the book of Jeremiah. And so I'm sure as they're sitting and reading it, they have shame and regret over not uh, listening and not obeying. And they have sorrow over the remnant that was ultimately judged and never made it to Babylon. And I'm sure they had a desire to change and live like the faithful ones, to obey instead of disobey. But how do we receive this? How do we receive this message? Some of it is the same. Definitely as I read this, I I have shame and lament over my own disobedience. And I also look at Jeremiah, Baruch, uh, the Rechabites, and go, man, Should I, you know, I desire to live faithfully like them. But some of how we receive this message is different. Because we have a bigger picture than they did. We have Jesus. We have the cross. So our understanding of obedience, disobedience, faithfulness, and grace is much deeper and more well-rounded. We know that left to ourselves, we will choose to sin. 
We will choose disobedience every time. Romans 3 says that none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So because of that knowledge, we see and understand a helplessness that Judah may not have fully grasped. While they may have wanted to try harder to obey, we know that no matter how hard we try, we will not be able to obey. We are helpless on our own. So that helplessness should cause us to run to Jesus. Because obedience is God's work. Obedience is God's work. Last week, as we were talking about God's plan to restore his people, I said it was really important to notice who is doing the work of restoration. Who is making Judah's restoration possible? God says, I will restore. I will multiply them. I will build you. I will bring them. I will make them walk. I will turn their mourning into joy. I, I, I. The restoration of their relationship with God was not their doing. It was all God. So as Judah receives this message, they should be looking to God to restore them. They should be pursuing his words, his desires. They should be trusting him more and more. And what about us? Judah got a little picture of God's work. Through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, we get a fuller picture. Titus 3, 4 to 7 says this, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, the credit goes back to Jesus. Our obedience gets us nowhere. It is God's grace that saves us. In Philippians 2, it says, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So yes, there is work on our part. But look at this. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The only way that we are able to pursue God's will and God's work is because he has given us the ability to do so. It is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the credit goes to him. The glory goes to him. So if obedience is God's work, then what are we to do? We rely on him. The nation of Judah relied on themselves to choose what was right, to choose to obey. And they failed time after time. They decided it was better to keep slaves rather than to set those people free. They decided it wasn't worth listening to words they didn't like. They decided not to surrender. They decided to go to Egypt. They decided that worshiping the queen of heaven was better because it worked out better for them. 
Left on their own, relying on themselves, the nation of Judah always ended up disobeying. Even when it looked like they were headed in the right direction, they still disobeyed. Hey, you freed the slaves! Great job! That was the right decision! Oh, wait. You took that back. That crumbled quickly. Hey, you vowed to follow God's word! Whatever it was, that's what I like to hear! But then they didn't follow through on that. Left on our own, we will always end up disobeying. Even if we say the right things or start out doing the right things, we will always fail. On our own, we are helpless. So thanks be to God for saving us. So we rely on him. We just saw that obedience is God's work. So this is how we should approach obedience. Don't go out saying, ah, I need to try harder to obey. You will fail every time. Rather say, God, give me the strength to obey. Or say, God, help me know what the right choice is. See the focus shift? Instead of trying to carry it on your own, shift the focus to God because He is the one that gives you the ability to obey. Invite Him into every moment. Lean on Him. Rely on Him. This makes obedience such a joy. Relying on God for our obedience puts the weight on His shoulders instead of on ours. Now, until we get to heaven we are going to continue to wrestle with disobedience. But again, this is why we must rely on God. As I have the band come up, let me leave you with Paul's words out of Romans 7. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Again, that's God-gift. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is how we run after obedience, as we rely on him.